Marathon County, July 1987. 55-year-old Kenny Coons returns home after a night out celebrating the July 4th holiday. As he drives up to the house, Kenny quickly notices several signs that things were not quite as they should be. Lights being on and a blasting radio at 4.30 in the morning was unusual for this normally quiet, secluded farmhouse. Entering to investigate, Kenny finds his family murdered in the home, all seemingly shot in the head. During the impending investigation, shocking family secrets are revealed and all but overshadow the actual murders themselves. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode five of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, my co-host, Mickey Sanders. How you doing, Mick? I'm the co-host, Mickey Sanders. I'm fabulous. How are you? I'm wonderful. Uh, it was earlier this week. It was National Paranormal Day. I think it was Monday or Tuesday. They do have something for like that stuff right. every day of the and year. And it's like now. one of those things that you don't know it until you wake up that day. And you're like, oh, fuck, it's pets. And there's a ghost hovering day. over it. Absolutely. Your, your, your yeah. So, the, you know, that made me think, well, shit, we should have had something prepared in the paranormal realm for this week. But, We've done an episode. You know, it. there wasn't a lot of PR done that would alert us that it's national paranormal i didn't even know about it yeah. week, so i've known about a lot of weird other days but i didn't know about that one. i didn't either so we'll have to keep an eye on that but next next episode next paranormal day will be set too. absolutely in a year from now hell It'll yeah celebrating <laughs> so episode five this is the jeff jenkins uh appreciation episode key off jenkins Num- number five Last time was number four. Wow. Number, number four, Brett Favre, right? Legendary, Jeff Jenkins. Yeah. I just thought of Jeff Jenkins because he was always the Brett Favre lookalike. That's right? awesome, actually. That's, that's what he was known. Jeff Jenkins was beloved. what he was known for other than the uh, the strikeout on the low inside uh, <laughs> curveball. The problem is he was one of the best players they've had, and yet I forgot all about him, and it hasn't been that long. Well, I'm glad I could uh, get him back into your vision, man. Reminiscing. Right. So it's been... 
a couple weeks now since our, our last episode. We did have the book event a couple weeks ago, a couple Saturdays ago, the uh, the book launch for Finding Dairyland. Big success. Thank you, that everyone, awesome. that, that came out. Mickey obviously was it's out fun, there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you never really know, I think, as a creator about how those are going to turn out. You know, you always have that question in your head you know does anybody really care about what i have <laughs> to say or do about even after having anything. already done a book right. you're still yeah. questioning that, so yeah. it was it was a great turnout i want to thank everybody for for coming out they're uh actually be doing another one in june up in price county uh in the friendly confines of catawba but uh there'll be more information <laughs> on that i bet you they've never been called that before very friendly it was catawba uh, Oh, that's what I said. C-A-T-A-W-B-A. You misheard me. That's what I said. Wonderful. So, yeah, it was, uh, the event was great. There was a lot of Badger Bazaar chatter there, which was really nice. A lot yeah. of a lot of talk about... There was a lot of people we didn't know that approached you and, and us about, you know, yeah. the, so the it's, subjects. It's, you know, it's always good to hear that, uh, you know, to, to, to tangibly hear or see that the reach... That we're having yeah. with the podcast, yeah, it's, awesome. it's 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 getting out there. So, um, but a lot and of the books. I mean, yeah, you, you you had a lot of people approach you that you didn't know about your books too, and your books are the same kind of subject matter. So. Yeah, you know, actually, it it was started at four, and there was a line at the bar about three o'clock when I was there. Not for beer, setting but for your up books. not for beer, right? Yeah. <laughs> to see me, so that's always that's always good to know, and. Um, Thank you, everyone, for coming out. We'll have more um, information on the one in June coming up next month, um, and maybe you can join us there as well. But the you know the the, the Walter Ellis episode was um, it seemed to get a lot of feedback. There was a lot of chatter at it at the event. Um, it seems to me that it, it it was kind of a lot of what you and I had talked about before, kind of what we thought. Where most people up here, I think, um, kind of vaguely remembered that. They remembered um, the Northside Strangler story. They didn't know a lot of the intricacies of it, the DNA stuff. Um, like everything else we've talked about, they've heard of it. Right. Didn't know much about it. Yeah, and it's kind of the, the, the void we're trying to fill with this podcast. That's interesting that you said that they even heard of it, because a lot of the people I've talked to have never even heard of that guy. I never He's even heard of it. He's a serial killer. Right, started, yeah, yeah, right. And yeah. You, I mean, you researched this stuff. I think that's when we when we talked about early in the episode about why that would happen. And I think we hit on that, you know, which, which it kind of reminds me, I'm, I've been, I've been on a Chicago true crime kick lately, <laughs> lately. And I don't, uh, it's not planned. Um, it's just kind of, it's just kind of happened that way. I'm doing a couple of Chicago things. I, for one thing I'm reading, um, Mickey, I don't know if you've read this book. I'm sure you have. It's Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. I it's have. about H.H. Holmes, yeah. I have two or three of his books. Eric Larson is a wonderful author. Well, I've just, H.H. Holmes is a fascinating subject. I haven't fully read either one of them because I'm just that diligent of a reader. Right. Discussed. So I've, I've been reading a little Fox City's connection to the H.H. Holmes side. You know, every time, if you're talking about Chicago, right, or Northern Illinois, whether it be true crime or whatever it would be, Good old Badger State just kind of has a way of kind of sneaking its way. Always ties, man. Sneaking its way in there, whether they're, you know, hiding out up here or they're burying bodies up here or there's victims up here. Somehow they've been here. There's something about it. But um, kind of just an interesting anecdote to the H.H. Holmes story. We Obviously, we're in Appleton. And those of you that are in Appleton or in the area, you know of the Hearthstone, uh, the Hearthstone Historic House Museum, which is the first house in north america basically lit by 
a uh, a centralized power plant, hydroelectric power plant. So it's in, in America, in North America, yeah, yeah, right. So uh, it's it's, it's, it's a, a big deal. It, it is a big deal. It's a, it's a very early pioneer in regards to um, electricity in residential housing. So it's a big mansion here, built in 1882 by a guy named Henry Rogers, who was the overseer of a of a mill on the Fox River here in Appleton that he oversaw at the time. H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, in his confession, H.H. H. Holmes wrote a big confession after he was captured before he was executed. Again, what we had talked about in a, in a Walter Ellis episode was serial killers like to bl- gloat about what, they, oh, what they've what they accomplished. Right, so, especially if they're not getting the attention they, do, right. they desire. So H.H. H. Holmes wrote this big confession while he was incarcerated, and, you know... If you don't know about H.H. H. Holmes, he's the one who, during the Chicago World's Fair of... I don't remember the year for exactly, but... 1893. Yeah. He, he created a murder motel, and... Honestly, there's. I, I just watched an episode of Unexplained History, something, some show like that on History Channel about Jack the Ripper, and there's theories that he was Jack the Ripper. Even he, I think I believe it's his great grandson believes it's right. H. H. Holmes' great grandson believes he was Jack the Ripper, and that came up in this episode that just recently aired. Yeah. So, and anyways, back to the connection. The the, the Hearthstone House, Historic House Museum was built by H. J. Rogers, H. H. Holmes claimed to have murdered H.J. Rogers, who he called a, a wealthy entrepreneur from a northern Wisconsin town. He did not. H.J. <laughs> Rogers actually outlived H.H. Holmes uh, by several months. H.J. Rogers, Henry James Rogers, left Appleton and moved to Chicago, and there is um, evidence that they were in some kind of business together, they did have some be- have some business dealings together. I've so heard it that, yeah. certainly does appear that Rogers knew knew, him. knew uh, Holmes, but H. H. Holmes did not kill H. J. Rogers. H. J. Rogers actually outlived Holmes, but just kind of a, of a cool connection to the Fox Cities with that. And the other thing I'm doing is I'm watching right now the brand new. It just came out documentary on Netflix about John Wayne Gacy. The clown killer. The clown killer, and it's it's really everyone's heard of him. It's super detailed. I, I can you know I can imagine if if people are watching it, they might um, think it might be a little slow, but I don't believe it's slow at all. To begin with, it, to begin with, it really gets into the intricacies of who he was. His uh, you know he was a very personable. Obviously, well not, respected. Not knowing he was a killer, personal, well respected. He was like the mayor, kind of boisterous guy, boisterous and he, personality. And he, he wasn't. Was like, he wasn't the mayor, but he did rub elbows a lot with powerful people. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought he was Northern there. Illinois, the Des Plaines. He had Chicago connections area. within sure he did. within that area. Sure, he I did. Mean, he like, would have. He, he was would on have committees and everything. He would have big barbecues in his backyard. Right. That would attract a lot of a lot of people in power right in chicago well he knew those, he rubbed elbows with those people if nothing else sure um which is part of right why he got away with it for so long and it gets into a lot of you know he he was married twice but he was bisexual and so a lot of his his victims were all male and they were a part of the kind of the gay scene in chicago or in northern illinois in the late 60s early 70s which at that time was underground right a lot of these kids had come out as gay to their families. They might have been from 
affluent families, but they were basically just dis- disowned. And you're talking teenagers, though. right? You're talking fifteen, underage, seventeen years right. old. They're a still lot of children. But but so they be- basically became homeless because their parents, their family, kind of disowned them. Right. And this is the kind of underground that Gacy preyed on. And there's a lot of undertones in Chicago then about how the police, you know, there was a lot of missing people then, but they just kind of glossed over it a little bit because they were part of that scene, that kind of seedy underbelly of Chicago at the time. You know, They're not as important. They, exactly. They didn't really put a whole lot of effort into finding bias. these people when they were under the freaking floorboards of this guy who they were going to their parties in his freaking backyard. There was even one guy... Uh, who was... Sounds like Dahmer along those lines. Yeah, I was just about to get to that because there's there's a story about a guy who... Somebody who got away from Gacy and Gacy tried to chloroform him and he had burn marks all over his face from the chlorophyll. And, but he got away and he went to the police and he said, this guy did it to me and his face was all burned. But because he was part of that scene, they just kind of thought, oh, you know, your car... You're kind of gay lover on gay lover, little spat going on. We're not going to really put a whole lot of effort maybe into you that brought this on when yourself. it was freaking John Wayne Gacy that did that to him. So it reminded me a lot of the Dahmer story where the 14-year-old got away from his apartment, if you remember. I think his name was Skenendor. And he was naked and running. He was naked and bloody running in the streets of Milwaukee. And, and a, a cop was right there. And the cop actually went up to him and was talking to this kid. And Dahmer came out of the apartment building and basically said, oh, this is my deal. You know, let me just take him back. We'll figure it out. And the cop let him go. The cop let Skenendor right. go right back because with Because you put yourself in that position. They, you know, if it happens to you, it's too bad. And they just, they just, when, when they weren't investigating that seedy underbelly, right? right? So you had. That's the life you've accepted. So that's maybe what's going to happen to you. It just reminded me a lot of the, you know, what we talked about with Walter Ellis when these were African-American sex workers, you know, this this kind of... Afterthoughts, basically. Afterthoughts of society that they didn't really investigate a whole lot. Turned out it was a serial killer. And with these, you had, you know, 25 years, 30 years earlier, you had white homosexual males. But again, in... Uh, a community that the police didn't really want to deal with. They didn't want to delve into that community, so they weren't that important. That seems to be somewhat, not a theme, but there is an undertone in some of our episodes about that, like even... No question. With with Ellis, like you said, in Wisconsin Death Trip, just people who are less fortunate are just not necessarily as well-known or well-to-do that just maybe aren't considered as important as far as investigation, which... I guess it's it's a human condition kind of thing, but it's unfortunate because we're all human beings and we're all equal. And that and that's exactly right. A lot of people want to pin this on police, saying, "Well, police didn't really think." It's just people. That it's, it's not people. The police. police right. You're you're right. Right. Police are people. Right. I mean, they're part of the communities that they serve. And they're not the only ones feeling that way. Right. So I think you know I think this theme comes up a little bit in in what we're going to be talking about today as well. Um, in the Coons family murders. For sure. So the Coons family murders. This, um, depending on how old you are, you might 
remember this. This was a big story back in the 80s. You and I, I think, Mickey, were 12, 13 years old. We were just basic, barely teenagers. I remember the name, and I, you know, I remember this being a big story when it happened. Um, and then I actually have done some research on this case in the past. You wrote an article. I did. I wrote about it in the um, in the past, and it, and this is you hear this come up in podcasts. This article as is well. mentioned in another podcast, a very very well known podcast. Well, my favorite murder is is uh, if you've ever heard of that, it's a very popular, well known podcast. Karen and Georgia, who run the show over there. Couple Actually, of stand-up comedians who do a good job. It's a podcast. fabulous podcast. If you've if you've never heard it, check it out. But they they actually did this a couple of years ago. I think in 2019 or 2018, maybe, based on an article that I wrote. They credit me in in the episode, which I want to thank them for. I that. almost but, fell out of my chair when I listened to it and heard your name. That was awesome. <laughs> but Karen and Georgia, they do they do great work at my favorite murder. So if you've if you want to listen to. A wonderful podcast to be um, greatly entertained. They're funny. It's funny. Yeah. They give you uh, good information. Check them out. It's episode 139 where they talk about the Coons family murders. Um, so depending on how old you are, you, you you might have a bit of a of a memory of this very bizarre story. And, you know, when we talk about bizarre happenings in Wisconsin, this is... This is up there. Yeah. You know, especially with the creep vibe. For many know, reasons, it, yeah. It... It gets up there and like, what the hell is going on in that house? The victims were a little eccentric to begin with. And then what happened to them is just horrific and, you know, what we normally talk about. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of elements going on that make it just bizarre. So the story begins. Well, there's really a lot of places you could begin with this. But we'll, we'll start with, with how everything kind of broke to the world with this story. And that's when uh, Kenny Coons, 55-year-old Kenny Coons, came home on July 4th, uh, 1987. It's actually the, the early morning of July 5th, 1987. Uh, he comes home from a solo night out. Basically, he was on a bender. July 4th, right? He's out. He's celebrating in his own way. He had a bunch of fireworks that he went. Apparently, he went to the bar to buy some more fireworks and then kind of got distracted by, you know, the same kind of thing that we Wisconsinites get distracted by. Kenny liked to drink a little bit. Yeah, there and, it is. And uh, he was at a bar... Uh, next door to his employer, he worked at a big craft cheese factory in Athens, Wisconsin. Uh, so we're talking 30 miles or so west of Wausau, central portion of the state. Um, but it's out there a little ways. You know, Marathon Wausau, County. Marathon County. Wausau would be the closest um, kind of city anywhere around. That anyone's heard of. Yeah. So we're out there a little ways. So Kenny comes home and he lived in a house with his family. Nothing unusual about that, you know, but we're not talking about his wife and his kids. Uh, Kenny did live with his family, but Kenny lived with his mother, Helen. Sorry. It's a little bit of that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where that came from, but uh, yeah. Yeah. The, well, it's it's relevant, I think. Right. You know, yeah. Similar. Uh-huh. So Helen Coons, Kenny's mother, lived in this house. She was 70. Kenny's brother, Helen's other son, Randy Coons, who was 30. 25-year difference Quite between brothers. Quite a bit brothers. younger than everyone else there. Clarence Coons, which would be Kenny's uncle, he was 76, and he's the owner of, of the property here. This was a 108-acre farm that they lived in. Irene Coons, which would be Kenny's aunt, she was 81, and Marie Coons, 
Kenny's other aunt, who was 72. So Marie, Clarence, Irene, and Helen are all brothers and sisters. They're elderly siblings living in this house together along with Helen's son, Randy. And Kenny did live in the house, but Kenny... And, and the son, Kenneth. Kenny that you're talking about. Right. Kenny did live in the house. At um, one point, at least. He did move out eventually. And, and when I say moved out, he just moved out of the house. He put a trailer basically in the front yard. Yeah, man. Because there it was... Evolution. Right? You got to, you know, you just have to sprout on your own at right, some point. Right, man. man. At some point, I get, you I got to spread f- my wings. You got to fly. I got to go 10 feet away. And- so he put a trailer in the front yard, and that's pretty much where he lived. Now, it got pretty tight quarters in that house, though, didn't it, Mick? Not uh, a big house. Yeah, we're talking about a very dilapidated farmhouse. Battered gray house, no indoor plumbing. There was no running water. Out, They had an outhouse. That's where they got rid of their stuff. This is 1987. Yeah, it wasn't 100 years ago. No, this <laughs> is 1987. And they have an outhouse. A very run-down uh, farmhouse, as Mickey said, with an outhouse. No indoor plumbing, no heat. So this is the house that these four elderly siblings lived in, along with Helen's 30-year-old son and Kenny, who were saying um, lived in a trailer outside the front, the front door. So Kenny comes home to his trailer in the early morning of July 5th, and we're talking 4.30-ish a.m., so... It's pretty early in the morning. Now, when Kenny comes home, he goes in his trailer, and he notices the kitchen in the main house. Uh, the light is on, which was very unusual. It's 4.30 in the morning. Right. And that light's usually not on. And there's old people living there. They're probably not awake. Right. Uh, and he also heard a radio on, which was very loud because he heard it outside in his trailer. So it's 4.30 in the morning. He sees a kitchen light on. He hears the radio blaring. Both of these two things are very unusual. So he does, I think, what anybody would do, and he goes to investigate and sees what's going on. Is there a party going on here, or what is going on in this house with my elderly? <laughs> a party uh, with the 70-plus-year-old people uncles, and Randy. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he did not see a party when he got to the house. So he goes in the house, and he actually finds his family, Randy, Marie, and Clarence, murdered. In the house. They're all dead in the house. There's blood all over the place. Seems like they've been shot. He doesn't really know. He doesn't investigate. But he knows that a terrible thing has happened. So he picks up the phone, obviously, to call 911. And the phone, the, the line's cut. So he couldn't call for help. So Kenny had to get back in his car and drive a quarter mile down the road to the neighbors. Again, we're, we're in a rural area here. We're not, this is not a neighborhood. This is not a residential street. It's not 10 feet away that your neighbor lives. Right. He had to drive. Right next door. He had to drive a little bit to get to the next neighbor, who was Arvin and Margaret Affelbeck, who were dairy farmers. So they were up. You know, we're talking, you know, what is it, 4.45, 5 o'clock or so in the morning right now. They're already starting their day. You know, sun sun up. Dairy farmers are, are starting to work. So they were up in the kitchen. And Kenny Coons comes to their door. And they answer the door and they see Kenny there. And so they, they kind of initially already know that something is wrong because this family was not um, socialites. They were secluded. They were very isolated. Kept to themselves. They right. never... Once in a while, they'd go to town here and there to get what they needed, but they kept to themselves, as you said. So because Kenny was there, and because obviously it's an odd part of the day, 
they knew that something was up. We uh, never see him off his own property other than to go to work, so they knew something was going on. So Kenny tells them something horrible has happened, and he asks him to call the police. So the police are called, and Kenny, Kenny leaves their house and uh, goes back to his house to meet the police officers. It's kind of funny. Kenny, Kenny, made, Kenny made a statement saying, what a way to start my vacation, he said while he walked away from the alphabet. So, you know, so, that's the kind of smart remark I would make. Ken, I mean, so humor does prevail, I guess. I mean, Kenny was obviously looking forward to a few days off from right. uh, the cheese factory here. And you see and something horrific. Until I mean, he sees his family slaughtered in front of him. So Kenny goes back home and he meets the police officers. And Marathon County Sheriff Deputy Stephen Stepper was the first law enforcement officer on the scene. He pulls up to the driveway and he sees an ambulance is already there, who was the first responder, obviously. He sees the ambulance there, but he sees all the EMTs just standing in the driveway, which is a sign right away to the deputy, Stephen Stepper, that there's likely dead people here. Because he sees the, the, otherwise the EMTs obviously would be, would be doing what they do, right? rescuing but because they're they're kind of standing in the in the driveway deputy steppert knows that there's finality there's likely bad stuff here so steppert goes and he and he talks to the emts and he's told that there's three dead people in the house the emts tell steppert that kenny obviously is part of that family they also tell him that he's drunk and he smelled of alcohol and beer pretty badly which is something that steppert obviously found for himself so steppert in the meantime goes into the house Obviously, he needs to see what's going on here. He sees he goes into the house, and he sees, obviously, the three dead people. He sees blood all over the place. But he can't spend more than a few minutes in the house because he, the, the smell was just so bad. Not from the rigor mortis. The smell was not from death. Right. The smell was from... Yeah, the bodies were not fresh. They were too fresh for rigor mortis anyway, but it was from the lifestyle that had been going on. The smell was basically from... Um, it's been described as cat piss and garbage. The house was horribly cluttered and hoarded. And just not well taken. I mean, because some hoarders can live fairly cleanly. They just have their stuff everywhere. There was This was just filth and garbage and no sanitation. So Stepper goes in the house. He sees what's going on, and he can't spend any time in there because he said he just couldn't breathe. He just could not breathe because of the heavy air in the house and just the odor was striking enough for him that he had to get out of there so he leaves the house and he goes back and he talks with kenny obviously kenny's still in shock he's just come home and he's seen his family murdered dude's hung over still yeah right what a way to come off a a a bender not feeling good anyway and then (laughs) you see that right it's just so kenny tells steppert who the people are in the house he tells him who he is and he also tells him that his mother, Helen, also lives in the house, but she's missing, along with his aunt, Irene, who's also missing. And Randy, his brother, his car, which is usually parked in the driveway, is missing as well. But Randy himself is dead in the kitchen, so we know that Randy did not take his car himself. You're There's jumping just... to a lot of conclusions no matter who you are at this point. Just, I mean, you can't find people. There's people dead. There's a vehicle missing i can't imagine what's going through kenny's mind so obviously the cops start talking to kenny what's your story right you found these people this is your family you're drunk what's going on here so kenny's story is that he worked his normal shift at the cheese factory nine to five thirty he came home he came home that day and he changed his clothes 
And he talked with Randy and his mother at the time. And he said that there was nothing out of the ordinary in the house. I think out of the ordinary would be a relative term. Yeah. Right? Nothing out of maybe, the ordinary. Maybe it doesn't apply compared, so much in this context. <laughs> out of the ordinary compared to what he normally sees in the house, right? Helen and Randy are there. They're talking about going to see the Athens fireworks that night. Because it's the, remember, it's July 4th. His uncle Clarence is in the living room sleeping. And his aunts, Irene and Marie, are there too. So there's nothing out of the ordinary for Kenny that he notices when he's home after work and he changes his clothes. So Kenny then leaves and he goes to the bar, which is right next to his place of employment. And, uh, you know, he celebrates the 4th of July. He's having a few drinks, clearly. So Kenny says that after he left the bar, obviously he's drunk. He's already been arrested before, not long prior to this time, for drunk driving. So he drives next door to his place of employment to sleep it off. And he pulls into the truck bay of the cheese factory and basically sleeps in his truck. This is his story. So then he wakes up. It's about 4.30 or so in the morning, and he drives home. And this is what he finds when he gets home. So uh, Deputy Steppert requested a detective because obviously we have three homicides. So Steppert requests a detective on the scene. So then Randall Honish and Sergeant Harvey Woodward from Marathon County arrive. And now it's 5.45, and they enter the home. And so when you enter the home, there's one entrance to this house. There's not a front door and a back door. There's not a side door. There's one entrance in and one way out of this house. So you, when you enter the home, you first step into um, an enclosed porch area, which has three steps leading into the house. And sitting on the second step, the second of those three steps, was 72-year-old Marie Coons, slumped to her left, and her head was resting on the floor which would be the floor of the kitchen. And just to add to this, to get to the house, it's in the woods, an intersection of two gravel roads way back then. So it's, I mean, we're talking seclusion. We're talking isolation. So it's, this place is kind of out in the boonies. So these cops are driving up to a situation that they're, you know, maybe a little leery of to begin with. And then they find what you've started describing. So they see Marie Coons, um, sitting on the steps leading up to the house, slumped over dead with her head resting on the floor in a pool of blood. She was shot in the head. She was five feet tall, 85 pounds. So imagine what a close range rifle blast would do to a five foot tall, 85 year old, 72 year old woman. So they see Marie, they step around Marie and they go into the kitchen of the home. And this is where they see Randy, 30 years old, lying on the kitchen floor, between a table and a wood stove. Now, they didn't have heat. So the wood stove is not only how they heated the house. A wood stove. It's not only how they heated the house in the wintertime, obviously. We're in July now. But it's also how they cooked. Right. They didn't have stove. It was a source of heat and food. Right. So, that, you know, we're, we're, we're living like it's turn of the century right. stuff here. Like a cabin, not your residence. So Randy's on the floor. On the floor in the kitchen. They see blood everywhere. And it also looks like his face was pretty smashed up a little bit, yeah. like he had been assaulted or that he had been in some kind of a, of an altercation. The gunshots uh, would kill them, but there was, there must have been some kind of fight. Looks like he was beaten up pretty badly, and then he was shot three times, twice in the head, once I think in the arm. Now, obviously, the the, the radio was still on here. Now, in a book, a lot of the information that we get is by a book by a former um, journalist from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel named Crocker Stevenson. He wrote a 
wonderful book on this. It's called Blood Relative, Portrait of a Mass Murder. Highly recommended if you're interested in this case. He reports that there was country music blaring in the kitchen. Every other account that I've read about this says that it was actually of a replay of the Brewer game earlier that day. That's what I read from the Post Crescent right. Chicago Tribune. Be- Randy and Helen were huge sports fans. And the reason that they had a radio, again, they didn't have a whole lot of modern amenities in this house, but they had a radio and it was because they were big sports fans and they wanted to listen to the Brewers and, right. and the Bucks and, and obviously local stations. That 1987 season, Mickey, that was a, that was a big deal. Yeah. Right? That we was were th- just watching the Brewers earlier today, yeah. That was the 13-0 and season. That yep. was the, the Easter Dale Swaim walk-off game. Three and two, two outs, four, four, ninth inning. Gander, there he goes, the pitch, a swing and a fly ball, right field and deep, get up, get up and get out of here, gone for Swain, and they've done it again, 12 in a row on a two-run blast by Swain to win it, oh my goodness, holy cow, do you believe it? That was the, I was actually at, I think this is, I don't know, somebody might write in and say, oh, it's the wrong game. But I was at, I, th- I believe it was game 25 of Paul Molitor's 39-game hit streak. Oh, really? And that was against the Texas Rangers. I remember that like yesterday, the that Texas a, Rangers. That game was a big deal, too. That was Julio Franco. I that think he was, had a huge uh, game. Yeah, I think Ruben the Brewers Sierra. had a good game, yeah. Pete Incavilia was on that team. 25 was a big deal on that 39-game streak. They lost that game, though. I remember that. And I think that was the only game. It can't be, now that I think about it. It can't be. But that's the only game I remember being at County Stadium. I had to have been at more games than right, that at County too. Stadium. But I remember that game very well because it was Paul Molitor's, I believe it was his 25th game. Um, but anyways, on the radio was a replay of the Brewers game earlier that day versus the California Angels. That's what you believe over the country music. Well, I, That's you know, what I read over and over, it, too. It doesn't really matter, I guess, no. but... Uh, just kind of setting the scene a little bit. It is a fact that that, that they made a point to make in, in both the Post Crescent and Chicago Tribune that I read from. Yeah, it, it seems like it was a replay of the Brewer game. Detective Honish, now he's found Marie on the steps. He walks past her. He goes into the kitchen. He has found Randy dead on the floor. He walks past Randy, and now he goes into the living room. Now we're talking about a severely cramped, hoarded house. Not a big place to begin with. Not a big place. And, we're, you know, people, there had been quotes of people, not many people had ever been in that house, really. On the premises whatsoever. But there's quotes from, from former neighbors saying that, you know, the times that there were times that they had gone in the house that they remember just walking in a straight line. Right. And not even having room to turn around to walk back out. You basically had to back up. It's not go. a big house. And everything's, there's limited walkway space because of all the stuff that's in there anyway. They had boxes and papers and magazines stacked four or five feet high, making just basically little walkways. They had bags of trash all over the place. There were 30, roughly 30 dogs and cats running around inside and outside of the home. So the house was not well kept, obviously. That's where the smell came from, too. So Honish goes into the living room, and he sees an empty bed in the middle of the room, and then he sees another bed pushed up against the far wall, where he found the body of 76-year-old Clarence Coons, clearly shot several times in the face. 
actually there were there were the face had gunpowder burns on them it the gun was touching his skin while it went off so he was likely clarence was sleeping when he was executed so now after honish sees this and he walks back in from from the living room back into the kitchen and he sees it he kind of notices another door that's partially blocked by a wood-burning fireplace or wood-burning stove i should say and a, and like a big chair like a big lazy boy chair so he walks into that room, and in that room, there's another lazy boy chair f- facing the other way. So the back of the chair is facing the door that he walks in. All you see is the back of the chair. Until he looks over the chair, and he sees in the chair the body of 81-year-old Irene sitting in the big lounge chair reading, uh, or she was well, reading. Well, not reading anymore. <laughs> she was reading an Alfred Hitchcock mystery magazine. Um, so somebody had come up behind her. And Kenneth, because her little body was hidden by that chair, Kenneth never even saw her. He was wondering where she was. Right. Ken- Kenneth thought that she was missing along with his mother, Helen, but Kenny just didn't see her in the house until Detective Honish uh, looked closer and found her in this chair. Now, think of this vision here. This 81-year-old woman is sitting in this huge lounge chair she was wearing a babushka reading alfred hitchcock reading alfred hitchcock she's wearing a it's babushka a ironic. right like this big like these handkerchiefs that you old ladies like wear I, I do i love that word it's babushka word to say, yeah. so she's wearing a babushka. babushka she's wearing a black cardigan sweater this is july 4th people right she's wearing a striped dress she's wearing leather stockings leather stockings and black snowmobile boots that's heavy clothing. On July fourth, nineteen eighty seven. Even in Wisconsin it's warm. No, she's about four foot ten, ninety five pounds. Shot twice in the back of the head with what appears to be a twenty two caliber at that time, about a twenty two caliber uh weapon. Which was the same for all of them. So now Helen was still missing. They didn't know where Helen was. They're assuming she's probably in the house as well, somewhere, or at least on the property. Randy's car was found pretty quickly because it was found by a garden that the family kept only about a quarter mile away from the home. Now, the car was found there, and it was found along with unidentified tire tracks. So there's a, there was obviously another car there with Randy's car earlier in the evening, and that would come back and, and be a, a, a big deal, obviously, in the investigation. So the house is obviously hoarded, and when the, when the bodies are removed... And the police are doing, obviously, in the investigation. This is when a lot of the bizarre stuff comes out uh, about what was found in the home. So, first of all, there were numerous bags and envelopes and purses around the house, all carrying money. Lots of stashes of cash. Like, loose cash just cash. all over the house. There was, like, $300 over here. 150 bucks in this cupboard over there, 50 bucks in that purse over there. Speculative that they didn't even know where some of the stashes were because it had been there for a while. So there was just so much money spread out throughout the house that they didn't even know. And it was upwards to $20,000. Right. All in all, there was over $20,000 in loose cash laying around the house. Different places. So, And there were also several uncashed Social Security checks. In the house as well, which added, a, I think, another three or $4,000 to the money that was found just laying around that house. So even though the house had no running water or heat, it did have electricity. 
right? right. So they, they did have a color TV. They did have a VCR and they had microwaves, you know, so they did have, um, you know, some modern amenities. But for the most part, they lived like it was 1900. And I, But I read that they actually even paid for their bills in cash because that's just how they did that. They things. paid for everything in cash, right? right? Yeah. Yep. I don't even know if they had it. They probably didn't have a checking account. Right, and that's the thing. I mean, you could even pay for things digitally back then if you wanted. But, yeah, they everything was in cash. That's why they had so much stowed cash in different places. That's just how they did it. And another thing that was found throughout the house was many, many VHS tapes. Uh, and, what and kind I, of tapes? And I think some of these are, are very critically acclaimed um, Academy Award winners. Mickey, why don't you name, a, name some of them? That's a loose term you use there. Ironically, I said loose. What it comes down to is these were adult types of movies that they seemed... It's speculated they like to watch these movies as a family. Um, I'm talking about porn, if I haven't painted the picture well enough. And some of the titles. Uh, well, let's just start with the first one. Diva does the director. Oh, yeah, sure. Throbbing threesomes. Stud Wars. Stud Wars. What episode was that? Was that episode 10? <laughs> Probably four. That's where the whole trilogy starts. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be serious. Beverly Hills Cox. Eddie and Murphy in that one too, or no? Is that the <laughs> I think he may have skipped that one. I think there was some kind of... Couldn't come to an agreement? I think there was creative differences. They spelled cop wrong, and I think he was upset about that. And I want to end with this one, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this due justice. Yank my doodle. That one's personally approved by Mickey himself. Right, Yank right. my doodle. I never... Believe it or not, I actually haven't seen it, but it's got a funny title. So obviously porn... Um, Brought the family together. ...was the genre of choice for uh, for this family. But they, they, they were they were in some kind of a subscription service where they would buy um, these VHS tapes. They had an extensive library, what I've read over and over. Extensive library. Extensive. And yeah. not only just movies, but magazines, too. So they, they were... Open-minded to the sexual appetite. I guess the family that watches porn together sticks together. Well, that kind of that kind of just blows my vision of that Alfred Hitchcock magazine that she was. Nice choice of words, <laughs> too, by the way. And she was wearing snowmobile boots. Right, right. There's images blowing up in my head right now. You know, we we uh, oh man. So uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff you have to laugh at when such a horrific situation is going on because this is. Well, how do you get away from this? So not only did they watch porn, obviously, it was a, it was a big it's part of It's out of this. the ordinary that a family gets together to watch adult cinema. Not typical. So, you know, whatever brings you together. I well, it may, maybe it makes more sense when we, when we look at the sleeping arrangements of the house. Yeah, maybe. And we realize that Randy and Helen, mother and son, uh, shared a room together. Son, yep. And they shared a bed. Now, this is also the room where the TV that was connected to the VCR was, right? So this is not, you know, this is 1987, right? Yeah, not there, that long ago. Nothing is streaming. There's no smart TVs, right? There was one TV, There was one VCR, so one TV had the VCR, so they would... But this was in our lifetime, so it's long ago, 
as far as technology, but not so long ago that we weren't alive. So uh, just to put it in perspective. No, you know, you just, you get, you got to let your mind wander on some of this stuff. <laughs> right. You know? That's I mean, why those titles a, are funny. A, an yes. elderly family gathering together in a bedroom, uh, watching Yank My Doodle on a 19-inch color TV. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right. They all stayed in the same bed. I guess so. It right. just happens sometimes. So Ra- Randy and Helen shared a room. They shared a bed. Clarence, Irene, and Marie apparently all slept in the living room. That reminds me of Willy Wonka, yes. Siblings all sleeping in the same bed in their 70s. Right. They need a golden ticket. That's all I'm saying. Now, now Kenny, as we said, Kenny, when he was in the house, he had his own room. When he... Since it moved out, moved out into the trailer in the front yard, evolved. his his room was used for storage. And there was old furniture in there and boxes and garbage. And it, it had basically been cordoned off. Um, and nobody had been going in there for probably a long time. So the question, the question becomes, you know, before we get to the question of who did this, obviously, and where is Helen, is who is this family? Who are the Coons family? Right. I mean, there, there's questionable things going on from, I mean, who, who knows? Just because you're sleeping next to somebody doesn't necessarily mean there's incestual actions going on. These are the questions that have been asked. So the Coons, um, they lived in that house for about 30 years. They owned the land for almost 40 years. So they moved they moved from a farm that they lived in with their parents, Anna and Ignate's coons. And so now to, to really to fully understand uh, this family, we need to take a look at the parents. And we need to take a look at where this, you know, kind of the seeds of this dysfunction were really sown. So we go to Manitowoc now. And if you don't know Manitowoc, obviously think of Stephen Avery making a murderer. That was Manitowoc County. So we're in Manitowoc now, 1905. So we're a ways back. So Ignates and his wife, Anna Coons, lived in Manitowoc in a house with Ignates' mother, Mary Coons. And this would be turn of the century. This would be 1905. Right, December of 1905 is where we're trying to get to. Now, they did at this time have two children by then. One was a daughter named Ella, who was the oldest of the family. And the other was Irene, who was basically uh, an infant in 1905 she would have been born earlier in the year so they lived in a house in manitowoc along with ignates's mother mary and ignates's brother wenzel coons wenzel. and wenzel was 28 at the time now in december of 1905 ignates was up north working in lumber camps and that was very common in that time you know even if you were down in the southern part of the state the central part of the state a lot of times during the winter men went up north and they worked in the lumber camps. Um, and they were gone for weeks or months at a time. That was not unusual. Lumber camps dominated the state. So at this time, in December 1905, it was Anna and her two children, which were Ella and Irene, living in, in a house with Ig- Ignatz's mother, Mary, Mary, and Ignatz's brother, Wenzel. Anna had left the home with her two children to go visit neighbors. Just a friendly social visit. She had come back home about two hours later and noticed nothing amiss. Mary was still in her bed. 
Wenzel was still in the home. Nothing seemed to be wrong. Anna just kind of casually asked Wenzel how Mary was doing because she was in bed and she was not feeling well at that time. And Wenzel just very matter-of-factly said, she's dead. So obviously, Anna's very distraught at this. Not knowing how it happened or what had happened right. or anything. She just knows that her mother has passed. Her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law, right. right. So she goes into the room, and she sees Mary, 70-year-old mother of Ignates, lying on her bed with blood all over the place. Bludgeoned. Blood splattered over the walls, over the ceilings, soaked in bed. Her eyes were open, and she had a bloody cloth stuffed in her mouth. Wenzel had beaten her, his own mother, had beaten her to death with a flat iron. Now, it had long been thought that Wenzel was mentally imbalanced, but... He'd never acted on it, and he'd done, never done anything violent or right, physical. Right, he was not violent at all. Um, he was just kind of seemed slow. Just a little different. Maybe mentally delayed. Right. So they never got any treatment for him. They never asked for any help for him. But as we've mentioned in other episodes, that, I mean, they... they they jumped to conclusions a little more. So that doesn't necessarily mean he did anything wrong. It's just they, they kind of jumped to the crazy a little soon. And until you did something like this, you know, you, you didn't necessarily deserve it. Now, there is another brother in the family, Joseph, who was committed to the Manitowoc County Insane Asylum. At already there. He was already there. After this happened, Wenzel went to the Northern Hospital for the Insane, which is Winnebago. As we mentioned in a previous podcast, still there, still operational today. Because so, he didn't deny anything. He did, yeah, right. He didn't deny it. He admitted to everything. He was very calm about it right. until he was taken to the hospital, and then he kind of broke down and and kind of just laid everything out there about what he did. Pretty good evidence that you're you're not necessarily right in the head when you bludgeon your mother to death, and you talk about it so matter of factly. So now, in reference to Wenzel, the Manitowoc County Court stated that he, quote, had long exhibited signs of failing mentality, and there is no question he is insane. They declared him insane. It is not expected his malady is curable. And that's, and that's how they described things back then. It was cut and dry. And I mean, you do something like this, there, there's a good chance... Well, li- temporary insanity isn't necessarily what's going on. Listen to how they describe things back then. Here's the examining physician at Winnebago talking about Wenzel. And it said he, quote, has chronic dementia, probably congenital to, congenital to origin, will stand in one place for hours without moving, appears stupid, <laughs> and takes but little notice of what is taking place around him. The family is weak-minded, unquote. And some of those things sound like fair assessments but appears stupid it just that sounds kind of ridiculous and, and you, you know and I, and I guess it does to us today it, it sounds ridiculous well, we're a little more knowledgeable about the human psyche i don't know if stupid had a different meaning a hundred years ago right but appears know. stupid just sounds ignorant no matter what you're saying no right. matter and, what the definition know, is and it's this is a this is this is a real examining physician at the time saying sure. this so they use different terms and they didn't know the psyche as well as we do now but but obviously something wasn't right, and, and people had speculated. That, and you do some kind of horrific act on your on your mother when she's sick, 
and in bed and bedridden. And, and then you matter-of-factly talk about it afterwards and then, and then finally break down because you finally have some remorse. Obviously, something's not going on normally as, it, as in the human brain as it would with the rest of us, hopefully, I guess. Right. And, you know, basically the, phys- the physician is saying he's out of his mind. Right. He's, you know, they use the term weak-minded. Right. And you said genetic. So, it, I mean, they were kind of saying this This does have a, there's a family history going on and it. There's evidence to that. I think I think that's their way because again there was another brother in a different insane asylum at this time. That you know when they say the family is weak-minded, I think that is you know period speak for right mental illness is running in the family. Right, exactly. So obviously the family is distraught. Ignatz comes back from up north, and he has to bury his mother, and he has now lost a second brother to institutionalization. He now has two brothers um, in two different insane asylums. Declared insane. So after the t- a- after a time, they wanted to get out of Dodge. They, Anna didn't want to stay here anymore. You know, she didn't want to stay in Manitowoc um, in the house where her mother-in-law was bludgeoned with a flat iron, um, where two brothers are declared mentally insane in different insane asylums. So she wanted a fresh start. She wanted to get out of there. So she had a sister who lived near Athens, Wisconsin. So they moved out there. They moved out there for a fresh start. And in 1914, they bought a 40-acre plot of land from the Wrightbrock Land and Lumber Company. Now, if you've caught our uh, if you've caught our previous podcast, you know we 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 talk about you know especially the uh, podcast we had about Wisconsin Death Trip. We talk about what happened to a lot of these people who purchased land from these lumber companies. These lumber companies were just looking to get rid of the land. It wasn't good for them anymore. They had used it up, right? The land was cut over. The logging companies wanted it for the, the wood. And once they cut it over, once they cut all the trees down, the land was no good to them anymore. And they didn't care who they sold it to. They didn't care who they sold it to, and they didn't care what they were selling because the land was useless. But they... They might even sell it as farmland, knowing damn well that it wasn't. Sure. You know, decades of logging had literally changed the geology of the land. and it was, So it was, just stumps. It was very... Good for nothing tree stumps and land, basically, at that it point. It was very difficult to farm. So these people that bought this land, oftentimes sight unseen, these people were poor. They couldn't farm it. They couldn't make any money off of it. And, and this is, like like we said, this is very similar to what we were talking about in the Black River Falls area, which would be roughly about the same time when we talked about the Wisconsin Death Trip, which was uh, two episodes ago. And actually, the, the, the book that we talk about, Crocker Stevenson in, in Blood Relative, actually opens with a quote from Michael Lessie, the author of Wisconsin Death Trip, which I didn't realize um, until I looked into this a little further. Um, but Michael, you know, in the book, Blood Relative, the quote from Wisconsin Death Trip mentions, quote, those farmers in poor circumstances first went crazy because they were ashamed. Then they went even crazier because of the shock of understanding that the intricate webwork of friends, neighbors, officials, purchasing agents, rivals, relatives, creditors, and dealers didn't exist to help, sustain, and encourage them didn't even exist to give them a good run for their money, but actually conspired to rob them blind 
strip them naked, and steal the pennies off a dead man's eyes. If that's not straight and to the point, and you read part of that quote in that Wisconsin Death Trip episode, but that's the entire quote, and that, I mean, that sums it up from from the horse's mouth. Rob them blind and strip them naked. Right. That is straight and to the point. That's the lumber companies, the railroad companies, and yes, even the state government at the time, in cahoots together to get rid of this land that they wanted settled. It doesn't matter who we screw over as long as we get rid of it and make some money to do it. And that's what happened to Anna and Ignace Coons. They were fleeced, right? They were poor. They bought this land that they thought they could farm. Taken advantage of, basically. And they were basically sold a bill of goods by the Ripe Rock Lumber Company who know full well, knew full well, that this land was garbage. The land that they did get came with an 18 by 20 foot cabin, right? An 18 by 20 foot log home. Uh, And that's where they lived. That's where they raised their family. So it had two rooms, one upstairs and one downstairs. So this would be the house that Clarence and Marie and Helen were born in. The house had two rooms, one upstairs, one downstairs. The downstairs room had a big wood burning stove in it. And the upstairs room is where they all slept. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Right? So this this is learned behavior again. These are how, you know, this elderly family that lived like this in 1987 grew up living like this. Well, and as we've mentioned, like even in the in the recent previous episode, people would like to tell themselves we're not animals, but m- most of what we do is learned behavior. And if we're raised a certain way, like with Walter Ellis, if he, if he was raised to have been abused or beaten or he saw somebody else doing it, he thought that was the way to do it. And that's that's what we do, whether it's good or bad, whether other people understand it or appreciate it or not, that's what we do. This is learned behavior. Now, growing up, they didn't even have an outhouse. <laughs> right? They would go behind a pile of rocks. And neighbors would reminisce, you know, that oftentimes they'd see a head popping out over the top of the wall when they'd walk by. This is poverty, folks. Yeah. This is what it looks That's like. what you do. I mean. This is not in a third world country. This is in Wisconsin in the 1920s, 30s. Yep. So there was a one-room schoolhouse nearby, and that's where um, some of the kids went to school up through about eighth grade or so. Marie was developmentally disabled, um, and she never did learn to read or write. Anna and Ignates pretty much kept her isolated. And Crocker Stevenson wrote in his book that by the time of her murder, so by 1987, by the time of her murder, she had become so obscure that the people who had known the family for decades were not even aware that she existed. Nobody knew that Marie was even alive. She never saw the light of day. She never they were that isolated. They, they knew there was a family bit there, but even the one family member... They didn't even know how many people were there. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy. So eventually that 18 by 20 log home was <laughs> a little too cramped. And uh, the, the children moved out. Well, that's why Kenneth moved 10 feet away. Right, that's why, and that's, exactly. I mean, that's a, it's the same thing that happened later on. But So the children moved out, and they moved, they bought land just to the east of their parents. So we're still in the same area here. We're basically... Six blocks. Um, you know, in the same area, just to the east of where Anna 
and Ignates lived. So Clarence bought a plot of land in 1949 for $2,000, and he built the house himself. Ignates helped a little bit. Um, Kenny, who was alive at that time, uh, he even helped, you know, pound some nails in and do what a what a 15-year-old could do. And they went from, I mean, the money aside, they went from what was 40 acres to now 108 acres. Right. So, I mean, good land or not, they got a lot of acreage for $2,000. So, again, the house had no heat. It had no running water. They did put an outhouse in, which is, you know, more than the, the main family house had. Moving on up. They, cook, <laughs> they cooked on a wood-burning stove. Um, but they rarely allowed anybody inside. You know, some neighbors did get in, as we had said before. There were some delivery people that got inside that house. But for the most part... Nobody entered those premises. Right, if you weren't part of that family, you didn't see inside that house. Even then, it was so secluded. It was, you know, basically gravel roads to get to the premises, and it was way back. Now, Helen is the one that kind of kept everything running in the house. She did all the shopping... Uh, she did have some friendly relationships with people outside of the house, with neighbors and whatnot. Uh, she and Randy, she and her son Randy were actually big, like we said, sports fans. So they went to all of the local Athens High School sporting events, football games, basketball games. Um, they were big local high school fans. Showing support. Right, so they they even won, you know, I think basketball and wrestling were, were the most things that they had went to, and they they actually received a medal from Athens High School um, for their fandom, you know, for their support from coming to all their all their games. But, you know, Helen was known that she, she would always wear a babushka, again, babushka. like her sister, um, and she always wore a big, heavy jacket. And there were quotes from people who always would remember her wearing that big heavy jacket and she would never take that off regardless of how hot it was outside or whether how hot it was inside she never took that big heavy jacket off but before we get further into that the point is is these people may have been looked down upon for the way they lived their lives and that they were you know maybe not as evolved maybe the right word for lack of a better term even they were appreciated for their loyalty to these sports teams and stuff. So even at some point, just the fact that they showed up and they were always there, even they got some recognition at some point. But yes, this this woman always showed up with heavy, heavy clothing on, which is a statement to some, to something. Possibly. And, you know, I, Irene and Helen in their younger years also did used to work out, work out of the home, um, doing housework. But, you know, as they, as they got older, they just never ventured off that property very often with the exception of Helen and Randy and Kenny, who, who worked at the cheese factory for 30 years. Um, but That's you the know, only time he left. Right. Just to go to he, work. he would go to the cheese factory and he'd go to the bar, which was right next door. And then come home. So now, you know, another question becomes, you know, Kenny and Randy are the only one of the children that are living in the house, right? Helen's the only one of the four elderly people that have that have had children. There is another sibling out there. Her name was Jermaine. She is kind of the only one of the family who, who had a quote unquote normal life. She did move out. She did live on her own. She was married. She did have children. 
and the oldest daughter, Ella, who had, we had mentioned earlier, had passed away in 1976, you know, well before this, any of this had happened. But the question becomes, because Helen never married, Helen never dated, who was Kenny and Randy's father? Well, in, in this that, family that was so tight-knit and living together. So in 1932, when Helen was 15 years old, she became pregnant. Now this incensed Anna and Ignates, her, her parents, so they called the police. And basically, Helen was interrogated. How did this happen? And Helen's response was that she was raped by a neighbor. His name was Frank Gums uh, in the haymow of his barn. This was Helen's explanation of how she became pregnant. He was a convicted bootlegger. He was a convicted bootlegger, but he was also a family man. He was married with seven children. Right. Uh, he had lived right across the street from the Coons's uh, original farm. Um, he stood in fairly good standing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, convicted bootlegger back then wasn't even that big of a deal, but just kind of painting a picture of who this man might have been overall. So Ellen says that, that he raped her, and that's how she became pregnant. So they brought this guy up on charges of statutory rape, and he went to trial. And, you know, Ellen's, Ellen's testimony during the trial was a bit inconsistent from her pre preliminary testimony. You know, she kind of waffled back, back and forth about how many times this happened. At first she said many times, and then she said, no, it only happened once. So there were some inconsistencies there. Frank Gums, his defense was that he wasn't even at the barn or at home when Helen said this happened. His wife testified that he wasn't home when Helen said this happened. And numerous other people testified in a court of law that said that Frank was not home when Helen said this happened. Also during the trial, it was brought out that Helen and her brother Clarence would spend an awful lot of time together alone. So kind of insinuating here that Clarence could possibly be the father of her unborn child. And at this as point. we mentioned, they, they showed tendencies that, it's an ugly word, but that possibly incestual actions may have been occurring. But in the end, the judge thought Helen to be, again, here we go, quote, too simple-minded, unquote, to be able to concoct a lie, like saying that Frank Gums raped her. So there, there's bias. But in this case, it actually helped her argument. But either way, you, you could tell the community looked down on these people for not being as fair-minded or healthy-minded as, as they, they might have expected other people to be. Well, we've we've now we've had a physician call call the family weak minded, right? And now we've had a judge call them simple minded, right? Too so, too simple minded, right? And I was trying to find the opposite term for that, which I I think I failed sure. miserably. But the point is, in this case, it might have actually helped her argument, whereas before before and later on, as we'll discuss, it it's a detriment. But saying that, basically, a fifteen year old, sixteen year old girl is. Uh, doesn't have the brain capacity to make up a story. Right, yeah, is, you, you know, can't lie because you're not of, smart enough. Kind of odd. Yeah, that's, so, that's a little insulting. So Frank Gums was convicted uh, of statutory rape, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. He had 18 seven, months. 18 months. 
for something that sounds it sounds fairly likely he didn't do. So he had seven children. They lost their farm. They, he lost his wife, and uh, he you know like he got out of prison eighteen months later, and he was killed in a car accident about a year and a half after he was out of prison. Yeah, so the this, this guy's 40, life was forty forward. years old, and it's all. It was over already, you know, if you want to look at it that way, and now he's officially been passed. So now, many years later, obviously, during the investigation of uh, the murder of his family, that unborn child, Kenny, told investigators that he believed his father was Clarence. and likely Helen's the, brother. And likely the father of Randy as well. We'll never know. This is 1986. Or 1987, there was no DNA being utilized. Right. right today, I think today, if this story broke, it wouldn't. You know, it would be so salacious and so sensational. Of course, they would do DNA. Oh, immediately. And whether there's speculation or not, but but when the offspring, the product of the relationship himself, says he never thought it was the neighbor and that he thought it was his own uncle, I mean that's. I mean that that's telling, if nothing else. We have, we'll never know. But no. you know, I, I want to go back to something. And maybe it doesn't matter, but it's crazy that Kenneth himself figured it was his uncle. I want to go back to something that I mentioned before when I said that her and Randy, when I mentioned that Helen and Randy would go out to basketball games and wrestling meets and stuff uh, for the local high school, and Helen was always wearing these baggy clothes, always wearing a big jacket that she never took off no matter how hot it was inside, no matter how hot it was outside. You know, that's evidence of victimization. Someone who's been hurt, that's trying a, that's, to cover up. You know, that's behavior of somebody that's been raped or right. is being violated. Right. You know, um, obviously. I mean, you're overcompensating. In hot weather, you're covering your body j- just basically as extra protection so that it doesn't happen again. That's that's the essentially the defense mechanism that's going on. There. Sure, sure, and and that's you know I'm I fully admit that's a conclusion that we're jumping to, but I think it's warranted. Oh, you know? I mean, to to cover yourself up to that degree, and and even in Wisconsin, that's warm weather. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's a it's a fair assessment. So the it's it's not purely conjecture that there was an incestuous relationship between Clarence and Helen, because. Kenny testify that he saw it really in their in their younger years he would see Clarence and Helen engage in sexual activity um, it even happened according to him one time when he was seven seven or eight years old in a car he was in a car with Clarence and Helen and they pulled over they pulled the car it was a model a car he pulled the car over and did it right there with the seven-year-old in the car. So again, the point is, this this girl at the time, or and many times after, she there's a good chance she was raped, but she basically tried to blame the neighbor to protect her brother, which you know battered woman will do. Sure, again, that's 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 victim behavior, right? Yes. And 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 she ended up throwing the neighbor under the bus, even if he was, I mean. We're speculating that he was, you know, innocent, but she was trying to protect her brother who was the villain doing this to her. But either way, she's a rape victim from the sounds of it. And it just ended up happening to be her brother, which is, I'm, I'm sorry, but another level of horrific and disgusting, obviously, because it's incestual. So, 
Yeah, there, there's a lot going on here. So now, obviously, during the investigation, Kenny was asked if Helen and Randy were ever sexually active, obviously sharing a room, sharing a bed, um, and Kenny could not definitively say either way whether well, they were or not. When he, he thought, no. and he thinks Clarence is his dad, so, I mean, that's telling. So during the investigation, Kenny is asked, obviously, by the, by the, the investigators, by the police, who he thought could have possibly done this. And he doesn't know. You know, he just, barely anybody gets in that house. Barely anybody, as we said, gets on that property. So he kind of thought about who who was, you know, who has been on that property. He kind of just casually said, maybe it was the four boys that came to the house about a year and a half ago uh, and bought two cars. And that piqued the interest, obviously, of the investigators. So Again, because so few people have been in that house, he did remember that the four boys, 20-ish years old boys who came to the house looking to buy a couple of cars, did come in the house when Kenny was looking for the titles of the cars. And he also remembered it because after they had left, he had noticed a couple things missing. There was a calculator missing from the kitchen table. There was a chain missing from the garage. So it looks like these, these kids that came out and bought some cars from Kenny, also swiped a couple things from him, too. So he called him. He called the guy back, and he said, I know you, I know you stole my stuff. Bring it back, or I'm going to call the police. And they did. The kid brought it back right away. These are just neighbor kids. Well, they're kids. They're, not, they're from the area, but they right. came and they bought two cars from, right. from him. So they asked, the, so, pol- the police asked Kenny if he remembered the name, and he's like, yeah, I don't remember the full name, but he did remember that they paid for the cars in in check form and that the check was written on the Bank of Athens. And Kenny remembered, and God bless him for having this memory, he remembered the last name was Jacobs. Even if he's simple-minded, he was still capable right. of remembering that. So now obviously the police are interested in this person who bought a couple cars from Kenny a few years ago, swiped some things from him. And so this turned out to be Christopher Jacobs III. And so it also just so happened that about a month prior to this incident, one of the four came back to the house and wanted to buy another car from Kenny. Mm. Kenny was not home at the time. He was working, but Helen talked to the person, and Helen was a little scared because she remembered them too, and she remembered that they had stolen some things, so she didn't want to talk to them. So she basically said that they need to call Kenny and talk to Kenny, but they never did, but Helen did tell Kenny that these people came back inquiring about another car. So Christopher Jacobs, 21 years old, uh, is a known troublemaker in the area. I mean, a, he's a, a Medford farmer. Yeah. But, well, I mean, that's what his family is. His family are, are, are dairy farmers right. in Medford. They actually typical. own two properties. But he's uh, kind of a thug. Kind of a petty car thief. Uh, he is a convicted car thief. So, And he did have... Uh, he did. Li- his parents owned two properties, one in Medford, one in the town of Burn, which is where actually the Coons property was in the town of Burn, just seven miles from the Coons property. Now, a friend of, of Chris Jacobs was, was interviewed by the police, and the friend testified that he remembers driving by the Coons house with Christopher Jacobs once. And Chris Jacobs stated that he had been in the house before, and that he had seen when a kitchen drawer was open, a wad, what, what Christopher Jacobs said, was a wad full of $100 bills in the house. So obviously now that piques the interest of the police and Chris Jacobs becomes 
their main suspect. Now, as Chris Jacobs and his father ran kind of a part-time excavating business, uh, law enforcement even went so far as digging up some of their past jobs over the last summer while they were searching for Helen. So they're still searching for Helen through this time. She's never found in the house. She's never found on the property. And she's the, one of the most outgoing people in the group, so people actually knew who she was even. Right. She's been out in public. People have somewhat have relations with her, so it's a big deal. Even as much as dismissive as people wanted to be to these people because they were you know, sticking to themselves and a little eccentric, it's becoming a bigger and bigger deal that her body's never been found. So Chris, like I said, Chris runs an excavating company with his father, you know, where they, they knock down barns, they fill in manure pits, things like that. So these police, uh, law enforcement goes back and, and, and they check the last few that they've done and they dig them up and they're basically looking for Helen. You know, they're grasping for straws pretty much. They're, they're, they're looking for Helen anywhere and everywhere. There's APBs for her out all over the state by this time. Nobody knows where she is. One of those excavating jobs Chris was seen doing in a driving rainstorm, which would have been on July 5th, which would have been right the, you know, the day after the murders. So obviously that piqued the police's interest as well. They, and that was a manure pit that had been filled in, and they dug that up looking for Helen, and they find nothing. So now kind of the notion that Helen might have had something to do with this starts picking up a little traction because she's still missing, right? And it had come to light that she had purchased from a, a local convenience store 22 caliber bullets not long before the murders. And she had mentioned to a Weeks store... Weeks before she bought those. Right, yeah. and she had mentioned to a store clerk that she was angry of uh, of all the porn being watched right. in the house. So she, she was at a at Wheeler Hardware store, and she was complaining about the fact that the family was watching their extensive adult film library together and... She bought the same type of ammo, the twenty-two caliber bullets, a bunch she bought for Kenneth to kill some blackbirds, according to what she said, uh, sparking theories of her possibly having committed these murders. So, right, that's what she said. She said the bullets were to kill blackbirds who were a nuisance around the property, but they didn't own a twenty-two gun. There was a twenty-two gun found on the property, but it was decades old, and it hadn't been fired in 20-some years. Which is weird that she bought those... Which is weird that she bought the bullets. bullets for a gun right. that hadn't been used. And not only... So she, again, she expressed the fact that she was uncomfortable with all the porn being watched in the house by her family members. And she made a comment to the store clerk, something to, something to the effect of, you know, quote, I could just kill them, right. period, unquote. So that became a big issue. Which is what people issue. say, right. But why are you buying bullets... When you never buy bullets for a gun that you never use after having complained about your family. So, yeah, I mean, people will jump to that conclusion. What was the ammo for? Right. right. So this, you know, the, the notion Not that... just blackbirds. ...that Helen had something to do with the murder of her family started starting becoming a little popular. Especially because you couldn't find her body. Right. And, and all that changed, however, on, on March 31st, 1988. So now we're nine months after the murders. An entire winter has gone by with no Helen. But on March 31st, 1988, Helen's decomposed, pretty much skeletonized body was found in a swampy area, thawing out from the long winter. Her body was found along Highway M, about four miles from the town of Goodrich, where, coincidentally, the Jacobs owned a second farm. 
she had been shot again with a 22 caliber bullet. Jacobs was eventually charged now with being party to five counts of first-degree murder. They could not prove he pulled the trigger, but they thought that he could prove that he was there, you know, definitely was party to the murders. The, the police and the prosecution had the frame of mind that at least two people committed these murders, and their case was that Jacobs was definitely one of them. The other thing about Helen being the possible killer was that they figured that she did all these crimes and then killed herself. She ended them and then she ended herself. So so they brought Jacobs up on charges. His trial began on October 2nd, 1989 in Green Bay. It was taken out of Marathon County, obviously, because there was fear that he couldn't get a, get a fair trial. Um, so it was moved to Brown County, and the trial was held in Green Bay starting in 1989. Now, they based their evidence against Jacobs on, on a couple of things. First of all, the tire track evidence. Remember, we mentioned before that there was unidentified tire tracks found in the garden about a quarter mile away from the house. Those tires were found, the tire tracks were found to match tires that were either found on Jacob's car currently or they were found in his house. So the thought process there was that his tires had changed. He changed his tires after the murders. So the tires matching the tracks in the garden, half were on his car, the other half were on his property, I think in his garage. So a tire expert did uh, testify in court that one of the tires was actually very unique. It had a cut coming off a tread. And a tire expert said that, quote, there was no other tire in the world, unquote, that would have made that tire track. Because of the slash. Because of the, the unique cut mark, the, other than what was found in Jacob's possession. So that, according to the prosecution, places him at least at the garden the night of the murders. That doesn't necessarily mean he did it, It but he was there. It does not place him in the house, but it places him at the garden where Randy's car was found. He was there that night. They also had 29 spent shell casings found in Chris's bedroom, which were proven by the state crime lab, proven by ballistics testing to have been fired by the same gun which killed the Coons family. Not the same type of gun. The same gun. Period. Like that's the only gun they could have produced that. It's the only gun. They know that the shell casings found in Chris's bedroom, 29 of them, were fired by the exact same gun that killed the Coons family, and they knew that the kind of gun was a Remington Nylon 66, which they also have, through transactions and receipts, proof that Chris's mother had purchased that gun, I believe in 1979. And even though the Jacobs had turned over 18 guns to the police, that gun, the Remington Nylon 66, which they believe killed the Coons family, and they know one was purchased by the Jacobs family, was not one of the guns that was turned over. So that gun is missing still today. You told me it's still still missing. Still today is Never missing. been turned over. Never been found. Wasn't then, still not. So the weapon that killed the Coons family, we know, was in Chris's bedroom at some point prior to the murders. With a bunch of casings, empty casings. Over 100 and some shell casings. 170, was found I think room. you said to me, yeah. Also, he had a sketchy alibi. He said, Chris said that he was at the Medford Fireworks on July 4th of that evening with his girlfriend, 
Uh, so police obviously went and checked out that alibi and talked to the girlfriend, and the girlfriend said that she was not even Chris's girlfriend at that time. They didn't become boyfriend-girlfriend until December, right? So we're looking five months after the murders happened. So that alibi does not check out. And during preliminary testimony, Chris's mother had said repeatedly she was unaware of Chris's whereabouts that night. But there were also several things working against the prosecution here. First of all, there were no witnesses, right? Nobody living in that house. No, Kenny was the only one still alive and he wasn't there. No murder weapon. Looks pretty sure that Chris Jacobs was at some point in possession of it, but they don't have the weapon. And he was there that night, but that doesn't mean he did anything. Right. They can't place him in the house. They can place him in the garden, but they can't place him in the house. And the other thing is Chris's mom, as I had mentioned, had had spoken in previous testimony that she was unsure of his whereabouts. She changed that testimony on the stand. And she said that while she was testifying in the court trial, now she remembers that Chris was actually home that night because there was a calf being born. And Chris helped with the birth of that calf. And she had no explanation for why she's just remembering this. Basically just saying that, I remember now that the calf was born on that night because I had it on the calendar. And so therefore I remember Chris being home that night now after she had testified preliminarily that she did not know about his whereabouts that night. So that is changed testimony. The other issue here going against the prosecution, Chris was a convicted car thief. He would steal cars strip them of parts, and then bury the car on their property with a backhoe. He would literally dig holes on his parents' farm and bury the vehicles. And now he he would also go off of the property and bury stolen parts so they couldn't be found. And where these were buried, a a lot of the things that he buried, a lot of these car parts, turned out they were buried in the same swampy area that Helen's body was found. So this was a dumping ground, a known dumping ground for Chris. However, the judge ruled that Chris's past car thievery, his past convictions and burying of the vehicles and the parts could not be brought up unless he testified, which, of course, he didn't because it would have strung him up. So he didn't testify in court. So therefore, the fact that where Helen's body was found was an actual dumping ground for Chris bearing car parts could never be brought out to the jury. Well, and just because you're a a car thief doesn't make you a murderer? No, but because you're a car thief and you're bearing car parts in the same spot that Helen's body was found. Right. That's... Oh, it's convenient. Sure. Right. So because of this and, and other scenarios brought up by the defense, obviously the scenario that Helen maybe Helen did it, like Mickey said, maybe she killed her family and then you know, wound up so many miles away from from the scene and then killed herself. So there was an expert on, they put an expert on the stand that basically debunked that theory, not only because there was no gun found by her body, which if you committed suicide, the gun's going to fall down, right? There was no gun found by her body. The expert testified that the angle at which she was shot at was not one that would be found in a suicide. Maybe it'd be possible, but very unlikely that that angle that the gun entered into her head would have been done by her herself. It was likely done to her. So the suicide scenario didn't really work. And then there was the maybe Kenny did it scenario. Nobody believed that. And then there were these unsubstantiated accounts of Randy being a known drug dealer, 
known to be uh, in a bit of a drug culture there, and maybe something went bad. There's no evidence of any of that. So all that being said, the defense apparently was able to throw all these things into the story and throw all these different scenarios into the story, along with having no witnesses, along with having no murder weapon, to acquit Chris. Chris Jacobs was found not guilty on all five counts. Fairly quickly. I mean, the deliberation lasted only a few hours. Some speculation is that because this family was looked down upon and he tire tracks and casings weren't enough to make them convinced that he did anything to this family that basically people just didn't care for necessarily anyway. So it sounds, again, like we've talked about in the past, that it comes down to people who aren't necessarily considered normal parts of society. I mean, there's a possibility that that's what's going on. No question about it. I mean, there it's, it's one thing, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Coons family and how they lived, right? As did his defense. Right. Because, you know, when you when you bring that this was stuff his defense. When you bring this stuff to light and you talk about how this family was so outside of the norms of our society we have today, it makes people speculate what is wrong with them, right? Right. People judge what they don't understand. And obviously people didn't understand these they didn't have access to the, their way of life and even what they did learn they didn't necessarily agree with whether it's right or wrong or not people frown upon the way these people live their lives so they you know and that that's human nature i think one of the telling things is is when you when you kind of read back to the media coverage of this which i think was fair you know judging from our last episode it wasn't the media coverage of this crime and this trial i think treated the Coons family fairly. What was telling to me is the statements that were made by locals. Right. Statements the neighbors. Were... The media tried to, to put a fair spin on it, but yeah, it was it was the people in in that community that looked down upon them and thought, you know, basically well, they were eccentric. Or... They they said it, it wasn't there was no I don't want to say there was anything derogatory no, said about it wasn't the family, derogatory. but I think the telling thing is, is that th- it was said o- numerous times. Locals were asked if they were afraid. Aren't you worried that there's a mass murder that happened here and that somebody obviously is on the loose for this, right? Nobody was worried about it. No. So why is that? Well, it's like you say. I... Well, that's that family. Right. right. Well, yeah. They're not going to be coming for us. Well, you know right. I mean? So, I mean, like like I put a heavy tone in it when I said it earlier, like, well, they put themselves in that situation. You put yourself there. So if something happens, it's not deserved. But, you know, you, you maybe should have expected it. That That's the mentality a lot of people have about certain things. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know about most people, but if there was a mass murder, you know, in close quarters to my house, I'd be scared to death. Right. What the hell's going on here? Period. Right? No matter who it was. But nobody seemed too upset about it. Right, because it's almost like all oh, those people. Yeah, well, that was that. You they know, got what well, was coming to them. Oh, there was a mass murder here? Oh, it was that family? Oh, okay. Right. Let's go back to what we're doing. They, they may have deserved it or something along those lines. So yeah. it's just, it's that it's that very kind of subtle, you know, well, they were nice people. They were quiet. They weren't hurting each other or hurting anybody else, but... You know, they did things differently. We kind of so. understand why this happened. And you know, maybe, maybe it was coming to them. So nobody was really kind of upset, which is a telling part of right. maybe why he was. People judge acquitted. what they don't understand, and that's what was going on. 
Now, this is not the end of the story here. Because in 1993, so now we're about four years after his acquittal, and and I guess to Chris to Chris's credit, maybe he didn't he didn't get out of Dodge. He stayed there. He stayed in town. He stayed working on his family's right uh, farms. A and guilty stuff. I mean, a he, guilty he person doing, flees as fast as you he would think. Can. You know, uh, and I'm not saying he's 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 guilty or not guilty. Right. I'm not on that jury. But typically, a person who knows they're they. Well, who knows they've done something wrong and has a chance to flee, will flee. So or, there's something to be or, said for that. Or, again, Hide in plain sight. you just think you got away with that. Right. It's over. I mean, yeah, arrogance does come into sure. play, too, with some. You know, I mean, I mean, with serial killers, it certainly does. I, not I, that he's guy. I just, I, guy is you know, there's a lot of evidence that said he did do it, too. Right. You know, so. Maybe he thought, well, I'm, I outsmarted everybody, so I'm going to stay here. So now in 1993... Again, four years after his acquittal, a former live-in girlfriend of his, Stacy Weiss, contacted police and, and basically dropped a bombshell, saying that Chris had confessed to her that he did, indeed, kill the Coons family to, quote, prove that he is a man, unquote. And he took Helen away. To prove to himself that he that he was a man. That's what he told her, she, she says. And he took Helen away with a plan to rape her so he could lose his virginity. Like, that's, I guess that's what a man does, right? Yeah. Is they kidnap a 70 year old. Glad I'm not a man, I guess. I'll stay not being a man if that's what's going you on. You know, that's how you lose your virginity. So, yeah. That was Stacy Weiss's story that Chris had told her. Now, she did go with police and did, because according to her story, Chris was kind of in a drunken stupor one night and he confessed this to her and then he had her drive past the Coons house and then he had her he had her drive past where he dumped Helen's body and so later on Stacy went with police and did this same thing and she was able to bring them close to the spot where Chris said that he had dumped her body and it was correct now the now the police are in a conundrum right because you can't try him again we got double jeopardy you can't try him for the same crime. He's already been charged with murder. He's already been acquitted. You can't charge him for that again. And all in all, this legal battle spanned a full decade. Just, just to right. give you some some time span on how, how long this took. To so what? Out. So what they did is because they couldn't charge him with murder, a day, one day, before the statute of limitations on the crime was to expire, they arrested him again and charged him with kidnapping. They charged him with kidnapping Helen. So this is how they skirted the double jeopardy law. And and right, Mickey's right. This, Chris Jacobs fought this, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, who uh, denied it, it, it fairly quickly. They refused, to, they refused to hear his argument, basically kicking it back here. But it got all the way to the Supreme Court. He fought it that hard. So basically saying that they're charged, this is double jeopardy. And, you know, because it's a different charge, um, the Supreme Court refused to hear his arguments on it. So he was put on trial again. Basically the same trial, right? Same stuff being told, same stuff being prosecuted, same defense on. The only difference is this former girlfriend now who's on the witness stand saying that Chris told her this stuff. So now... His defense to that is, well, she's a jilted lover, basically. And that she was a criminal giving false testimony to get out of 
burglary and bank robbery charges in Minnesota. Cutting a deal, basically. Right. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Trying to get herself off. So he's he's put on trial for kidnapping Helen, which carried a maximum sentence if convicted of 31 years. And this was held in St. Croix County. So this is way up north in St. Croix County. So the trial starts in 1997, and this time it's different. This time Chris was convicted not of murder, but of kidnapping Helen. And the judge threw the book at him, the full 31-year sentence. So he starts his prison sentence in 1997, and he gets paroled in not long ago, 2020. 2020. February 4th, 2020. But the very day he gets paroled... From Columbia Correction Facility, for the record. The very day he gets paroled, he gets rebooked on a, quote, rules violation, unquote. I don't think even today we know what that rules violation was. And what does that term even mean overall? Basically what happened is Chris petitioned the court to serve out the rest of his sentence in prison. He didn't want to get out. So he actually wrote letters to to the judge before his parole saying that he didn't want it. He was afraid of police retaliation is what I've read. And what I also read, in 2018, he petitioned to shorten his sentence so he could leave Wisconsin once released, but he was denied of that, too. So there was something going on in his his head as far as how people were going to look at him, especially the law enforcement. To some degree, what you're going to say now. So well, ahead. we're talking 35 years. Right. How many of these cops are even on the force anymore? Right. You know what I mean? So, so I initially that, it was about that, but eventually it became more about... So. Uh, According to the June 5th, 2020 edition of the Wausau Daily Herald, quote, Jacobs made it clear he was not interested in parole, refused to sign or acknowledge the rules, didn't want to meet with a probation officer, and said he wished to serve out the rest of his sentence in prison. Jacobs had a good rapport with one of the jail corporals and did not cause any problems while in jail. Three weeks before he was to be set free on parole, he wrote a letter to the court asking if he could stay in prison while other motions he filed were pending. So his his kind of reasoning for this was because he was worried about retaliation from police. At least early on. And eventually it sounds, as you speculated, that he was he became institutionalized, which does happen. No doubt. I don't think there's any... There's no question in my mind that he is institutionalized. He doesn't know how to live outside of this prison well he couldn't i mean anymore i mean the the only people speaking up for him speaking on any behalf good or bad were ex-girlfriends you didn't hear anybody else standing up for him so he probably didn't have a whole lot of family or friends left and he had been in prison for so long that yeah like like you said that just became his life and he you, you hear this enough in movies and in reality that people just become afraid to live on the outside He's not an old guy. He's 53 today. Today. Right? So you go out, you get out of the prison system. You're 53 years old. What are you going to do? You're not going to get a job. It, it it does happen. These guys become so used to who they are on the inside, and they you know they have credibility on the inside and all that stuff. They, they get to the outside, and they have this freedom, and they don't know what to do with it. And, and, and they know that people are looking down on them. Because, you know, people, whether they know or not, that you just have this guilty conscience. And and some people do know. They just don't know what to do with themselves. They, they think, they just assume that society's looking down on them. and or, or they just don't, 
they're not used to not having to ask to go to the bathroom or to do everyday things. And this is a realistic thing that happens to these guys who've been in their life into the into prison for much of their lives. It happens quite a bit from what I've understood. It, it definitely happens. You see it a lot in, in, in kind of the work that I do as well. People get used to this way of life. They get used to the institutionalized way of life. Right. You see it in rehab a lot. You know, addicts go to rehab. They're in rehab for 90 days, whatever it would be. They get out, and now they have to make their own decisions. Right. right? They have, not only have to make their own decisions, they have to do things for themselves. And that doesn't sound like a lot to people that aren't in that lifestyle. No, but that's what got them the problem in the first sure. place is making their own decisions. You know, when you have that accountability or that responsibility and you're not, for whatever reason, we can talk about these people however way you want, if you're not ready to take on that responsibility, what are you going to do? And you're talking short-term people. Yeah. But people who have been in prison in like federal years. prisons for a long time, that becomes their life. And at some point, as you say, they become upstanding citizens within the prison system. They become people who have respect because what they did on the outside isn't what they're doing on the inside because they probably can't get away with it or they just have moved on from that or they've grown older. They they are now respectable human beings and they have you know certain responsibilities and they start to actually respect themselves as human beings whereas they probably didn't before. And once they get on the outside, that's all gone. So it's almost like they miss, oh, I was somebody back in the prison, and now I'm not. And now people who do know who I am look down on me, and people who don't know who I am don't care if I live or die. So as hard as it might be for a lot of people, because people are so judgmental these days, to understand these people's points of view, these are realistic thoughts that they have. And if you can just for one second put yourself in their shoes, it makes sense. You can understand Think if of, you try to. Think of the scenario. Just take on the hypothesis or take take on the vision that he did not commit this crime. Right. It's never been proven. So no, I, I believe, you know, a, a, the, the prosecution obviously thinks he did. Sure, the, a lot of people think they did. The investigators and the police departments involved think he did. I think we the, might even think he did. The judge that put him away for 31 years obviously thinks he did. But it's not proven. Well, I don't know about that. It's, well, it's okay. not. It's not. He he, it hasn't he wasn't been declared. Con- he wasn't convicted, convicted for the murders. Right. right. Okay. That that's the point I'm trying to make. But just you know, think if that's right though. Think if he did not do this. Right. We now have another life that wasn't murdered necessarily. Right. That day, but it's still if, snuffed out. If he wasn't guilty of it, then his life's been taken away from him too. And I mean, <laughs> as screwed up as it sounds, if he if he was guilty. And he, by the sounds of it, he did become institutionalized. It sounds like it may possibly he found an identity on the inside of the walls. So, I mean, if you want to look at it in a screwed up way, that's how I look at things. Maybe, maybe this was for the best if he was guilty. We just have to look at the last podcast that we did about Walter Ellis, where we have two instances, just in that case, where two people were convicted of a crime, convicted of murders, that they did not commit. Right. One spent 13 years in prison right. for a murder he didn't commit. The other one spent five years in prison right. for a murder he didn't commit. So this does happen. I understand, you know, the evidence here is damning against him, and I, you know, I'm fine to go on record to, to, to say that I think he did it, sure. but that doesn't mean he did. No. You know what I mean? We still don't know for sure, period. But he became institutionalized. And at my point that I was just 
making is possibly as as messed up as it sounds. Possibly this guy's life became better. He he seemed to be want wanting to be in prison, so maybe he was he became more respecting of himself on the inside. I, I mean, I, I think that could happen too. It it sounds bizarre. It sounds screwed up. That's what we're doing here. Bizarre. Stranger things have happened. It, it, I mean, it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's just a point I'm making. Well, it's the life that he's choosing right now. Well, he, right. He, he had a he had an opportunity For to some walk reason. out of prison. Right. And he's choosing to live a life in prison until 2029 when he's going to be released. Right. And so maybe he just found himself on the inside. The life that the Coons family lived is the life that they chose. They had $20,000 of loose money in their house. Right. Did they have to be living the way they did? No. Clearly and, not. And I mean, and you can say, you can break it down any way you want, but your life is your choice. It's your responsibility. So as you said, it's their choice that they live that way. Whether people agree with it, understand it, acknowledge it or not. And it's really nobody else's business, but everything we've said is what happens. We have obviously a tendency in our society to disparage people who don't necessarily follow the same societal they norms as we do. They don't do it the do, way I do, so right? I look down on them. That's what you we know? do, yeah. So I think there's a big lesson here in everybody involved in this story. The murder the murder victims and the uh, the suspected murderer both chose a life that I think other people would not have chosen. Because, as I've said, people judge what they don't understand. And maybe we shouldn't stop doing that. Yeah. I think if we started judging ourselves more and everybody else less, we'd all be better off. Amen, brother. <laughs>